a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Utah Weekly Forum. My name is Bo Walker. I'm filling in for Rebecca Cressman uh, while she's away. And our guest this week is uh, Kim Campagne. She's the Assistant Vice President at Intermountain Healthcare's Pain Management Services. Kim, thanks so much for being with us. Well, hi, Bo. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And this one is kind of close uh, close to me. Um, the Pain Management Services, tell us what you do first. In, in that capacity as Assistant Vice President, what is your role there at Intermountain? Oh, so I have the great opportunity to lead, to lead pain management services for the organization. And so we are really focused on helping our patients to uh, address their pain needs, both in the outpatient setting and out in the community, in our, in our outpatient clinics, and also in our inpatient settings, like in our hospitals, when patients come in to have surgery or procedures, we want to make sure that their pain is treated appropriately, but we're also doing that in a very safe way because safety is always our top priority. How long have you been doing this, Kim? So I've been a healthcare provider for about 30 years. Uh, my role in pain services has been um, just about three years. And so we've really got to have some great opportunities to, to really have some cutting edge technologies to help our patients and to, to address their pain needs. But we're really trying to shift the focus on pain control now and looking at really safe alternatives for our patients. We'll talk about that in a second. My guess is that you have a, a, a veritable alphabet soup behind your name. Are you a, a doctor by chance? or I'm a, a pharmacist by training, and so oh. I've worked as a, a pharmacist for many years. And then I've also taken on many um, uh, leadership roles uh, throughout the time. And then, like I said, over the, about the past three years, I've transitioned to um, leading pain services for Intermountain Healthcare. So it's really been a great journey for me. Um, I get to use some of my expertise as far as, you know, opioids, pain management, how we treat our patients, um, and then really help to focus that in our, in our journey moving forward, specifically for pain management. Well, let's talk about that. The uh, opioid crisis is not quite what it used to be, if, if I'm understanding it correctly, but it was. It was out of control. And speaking from experience, I got prescribed opioids way back when, like probably the mid to late 90s, where it wasn't even known, you know, the way the, the salespeople that were selling things like Vicodin to the doctors uh, were saying, oh, it's, it's not addictive and it's totally safe. I went to, I was having headaches at the time, and my last choice, I was thinking, you know what, maybe it's TMJ. Let me go to a dentist and see if that has something to do with it. And the guy was like, no, there's nothing wrong with your jaw, but you know, if you're you're going to take something for uh, for pain, here, take these. And he wrote me a prescription for 100 Vicodin ESs, and I went, wow, this really does give get rid of your headache. But I soon learned that I had a physical addiction to it, and back then, 
I don't think people were going to inpatient treatment centers to get off of opioids like that. Now, of course, it's it's quite common. But uh, back then, I, I just had to kick it myself and didn't even know what was happening to me at the time. So is the opioid crisis still where it was probably 20 years ago? You know, that's a really great question. And I'm happy to say that we have really progressed and we've learned a lot in the last 20 to 30 years about opioids. You're right. Going back to you talked about maybe the early 90s, mm-hmm. you know, the, the information that we were receiving at that time is that opioids were safe and there was not really a, a dosing limit to what should be uh, prescribed at that time. And so, you know, we all have this, this theory about treating pain. We didn't want patients to have any pain. We were doing really well at controlling patients' pain. As the years have gone on, we've done you know so much research and we've learned so much from what's happened. We've learned about the true harm that opioids can cause um, for pain-related disorders, and so we have we have tr- we have adjusted and we have changed our our thought and our prescribing practices to adjust and learn from the past because unfortunately we have lost so many lives to the opioid epidemic. Now, while we've made really great strides and we're really proud to say that, no, we are not where we used to be. And there's so much more awareness around opioids. And also we've helped to reduce the stigma about opioids. We're now able to talk about them more in a, in a free manner. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, we don't need to feel ashamed any longer that, Hey, I've got questions about opioids. I don't understand this. You know, I maybe even have a problem. It's, it's okay to talk that and to seek help and to also ask for more information and to speak up and make sure that we feel well-informed, we feel empowered, and we truly understand our healthcare journey. So there's been a tremendous uh, trajectory over the last 20 plus years. Much like with alcoholism, they're trying to normalize that as well, is that we find out that it's a disease that needs to be treated for the rest of your life, but to remove the stigma of it. And with the opioid crisis, the same type thing. You want people to be able to come feel comfortable enough to come forward to go, wait, wait, there's something going on here. I feel physically addicted to this. Something's happening. Can we talk about it? You obviously are in a position to be able to do that. Our guest is Kim Campagna, the Assistant Vice President of Intermountain Healthcare's Pain Management Services. What exactly have you done to make that happen? How, how have you approached it? taken a real big system approach. We've come together and we've, we've worked to address this issue. Of course, uh, we are always trying to ensure our patients and our communities can live the healthiest lives possible. So part of attaining this safety goal, we want to ensure that as an organization and as our care providers, that we are prescribing opioid medications responsibly to ensure that we're keeping our patient safety always top of mind. And so we've come together to say, what can we do collectively as a system? And so what some of the things that we have done is we have changed um, the way that we prescribe opioids, specifically those for acute needs. And what I mean by acute is that if a patient is having an injury where maybe you've, uh, somebody's broken a bone or they, they need to have surgery, we are working to right-size the, the number of opioid tablets that are given to our patients. We did a lot of research in partnership with our patients to understand after they had an acute episode, how many opioid tablets did they really need to take and how many did they have remaining? Mm -hmm. And what we learned from that was astonishing. We learned that we were way over prescribing many more tablets for these patients than than was necessary. 
So in partnership with our patients, we learned that, okay, we do not need to prescribe as many opioids for for a knee replacement or for whatever the type of surgery or procedure the patient is having. We want to make sure that the patients are getting the appropriate amount of opioid tablets, but not giving them excessive amounts. Because as we know, if patients aren't using all those medications, they remain in the home where, you know, not only them, but others are exposed to having them there, specifically younger children, which could cause a lot of harm down the road or accidental overdoses. So by right-sizing those tablets, we're not only keeping our patients safer, but we're also able to keep our community safer. Mm -hmm. And we've had phenomenal success. By doing this, and by also right prescribing to better fit the needs of the patients, like I say, aligned with the procedure or the pain needs, since we initiated this event, these, these processes, I should say, we have been able to prescribe 11 million fewer opioid tablets wow. uh, over the last few years, which has been significant. It's a 40% reduction in our acute prescribing, and it was also led to a 31% decrease in our chronic prescribing of opioids. So we feel really great about the progress that we've made. That's huge. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you about chronic pain because there are people that do have chronic pain. So we talked about acute. If you're going in to have a procedure, let's say you tripped and fell down and you went to the doctor and the doctor gave you some pain medicine just to get you through that period. But there are people with chronic pain that need to take opioids or some type of pain medication uh, long term. What are you doing with those folks? So we, there's there's several different things I'd like to say. First of all, we are looking um, not only the number of tablets that are being prescribed, we are also looking at high-dose opioid prescribing, specifically looking at a, it's called morphine milligram equivalency. And what this is, it's a way to um, kind of create an equal base for opioids because not all opioids are created equal, equally. It's kind of like comparing apples to oranges based on which opioid is prescribed, the strength of the opioid, and also the frequency of the tablets that are prescribed. And so this is a metric that's used as a gauge of the overdose potential for the amount of opioid that is given on a daily basis. And so what I'd like to say is, as I said, not all opioids are created equally, but as that potency of the opioids increases, the risk of overdose drastically increases. And so just to maybe give you an example by what do I mean by morphine milligram equivalent and what does that mean? So if we look at fentanyl, and we probably, we hear a lot about fentanyl being in the news. It's an, an illicit or, excuse me, can be illicit, but it's also a synthetic opioid. But it's 50 times more potent than heroin. Wow. And, and then it's also 100 times more potent than morphine. So by looking at the morphine milligram equivalent or the MME, we're able to compare those, those potencies uh, based on one another to truly understand what is a patient's risk for overdose when they are taking these appropriate opioids. Yeah, and so basically we're comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges when you break it down mm-hmm. to the MME. Mm-hmm. That gotcha. is correct. And so then what we're saying, so you asked about the chronic pain patient. Mm-hmm. And we're learning a lot about this too, Bo. And what we've learned is studies show that opioids aren't actually as effective for long-term pain as what we once thought. 
And so we're trying to be very mindful about that. We know we have a lot of patients who rely on those opioids for their pain, but it also sets those patients up for uh, risks and the potential for overdose. And I think something that patients should know is even if they're taking opioids as prescribed, there is still a risk of overdose based on taking them just exactly as prescribed. And that can be due to many different factors, such as what other medications are they taking? Mm-hmm. Um, if a patient is obese, do they have sleep apnea or troubles breathing? Um, other medical conditions or what we call com- comorbidities, there's a lot of different factors that need to be considered. So just really understanding what is a patient's risk when taking an opioid, specifically as those potencies increase, is really important. And specifically, as we talk about our chronic pain patients, those who may have been taking them and say, hey, I've been taking this for 20 years and I've been fine. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're thrilled that they've been fine. But that doesn't mean that there could not be problems in the future with those prescribed opioids. So that's one thing we really want to bring awareness about is any opioid, no matter how it's prescribed, does come with inherent risk. It's hard on your liver. It's hard on your kidneys as well. For people taking it for 20 years, it's certainly going to have an effect on that. Earlier in the program, you mentioned that you have found opioids are not really that good you, you know, at treating pain, yet you found some other things. What are some alternatives to prescribing opioids? Well, we could have a whole segment or several hour segment on this, <laughs> um, both, but maybe I could just give a few highlights. Sure. And I always recommend is the first thing is always have a conversation with the doctor, the nurse practitioner, the physician assistant, the dentist, the pharmacist, whomever you may be talking to about the opioids and really understand what are the potential risks if an opioid were to be prescribed. Ask, are there alternatives? Specifically, start off with, are there things over the counter that can be taken? Specifically, ibuprofen taken on a routine basis, Tylenol taken on a routine basis, those combinations work really well together um, to really reduce pain. So just even start off with conversations like that, asking about things such as ice. You know, if there's swelling, um, that, that can help to reduce that swelling and that inflammation that many times is causing the pain. Ask about those other alternative options over the counter. So like NSAIDs, start with that? Is the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, is that NSAIDs? Oh, listen to you both. Wow, right? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Um, Also, lots of things that can be done that are not medication-related, specifically things such as cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm, CBT. What that means, CBT, correct. DBT. It's a way of mindfulness relaxation. There are many different uh, programs, uh, behavioral psychologists. There's, there are apps on the phones that can truly help with this. And it, there's, there's great evidence that shows that this is kind of a great approach to take for people who are having pain. It helps to minimize their pain and without having to take any other type of medication and specifically opioids. And even patients who are taking opioids, even by using CBT, we've found they are able to decrease the potency of the opioids that they are taking. We've had great success with it. That's interesting um, that you brought that up. I, I had no idea that that was being recommended, but you're, you're in my wheelhouse now. I'm in recovery and I've been working in the recovery field for a little over three years now. 
And so I'm very familiar with those modalities, meditation as well. I had no idea mm-hmm. they were using that for, for pain management, though. That's interesting, yet I can attest to the fact that getting to the root of problems, usually with cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectic behavioral therapy, those types of uh, modalities was really helpful to me. Yoga even was super helpful mm-hmm. to me. Being able to stretch again, because I did, I've had two back surgeries and I didn't think I would be able to do any of this stuff. And once I did, I felt so much better. And of course, it helped me because it was. It was aggressive stretching or actually it was mild stretching at first, but I was able to do it longer and better and the more I did it. So I thought that was fantastic. I was going to talk to you about that. The physical addiction is one thing. We know that. What about the mental component of that addiction as well? Yeah, just like you mentioned, as a part of opioid use disorder is really having that proponent to the inability to control the opioid use based on, you know, kind of that mental thinking and the, the cravings uh, associated with an opioid. There's a strong desire to use them, which can cause negative effects on our personal relationships, finances, and also job performance. So one of the things that we do is we have an interdisciplinary model, which we know is the best way to treat this based on, we call it the biopsychosocial model, which is the biological effects, everything that's happening um, internally with the pain, the the psychological effects that you're talking about. We know that's a huge component mm-hmm. in pain management. And then um, we, what we've done is we've taken a group of, of interdisciplinary professionals. We have physicians, we have nurses, we have pharmacists, we have nutritionists, physical therapists, and behavioral psychologists in our clinics so that we are taking a team-based approach at treating all aspects of pain because we do know that each of those plays a a huge, um, has a, I should say, has a component to the pain, the complex pain patient. And so we were really working hard to address the the psychological impacts of pain. We have specific pain-related psychologists pain psychologists that truly just focus on this, just like you say, helping patients to understand what's happening with them, Mm -hmm. you know, helping them to have techniques, relaxation, mindfulness programs so that they can reduce some of the psychological stress and strain from coming with, from having pain. And so it's, it's a, it's a phenomenal approach. And this is one that we truly embrace for all those specifically complex pain patients, which are so many of them. So it's, it's addressing the, the pain aspect in a multifactorial way, not just here's the medication to take care of it. It's addressing all the different elements that, that could be contributing to the pain. Well, we're on uh, Utah Weekly Forum. It's Kim Campagna, the Assistant Vice President at Intermountain Healthcare's Pain Management Services. And I know you're familiar with the hierarchy of needs. And this is what was taught in treatment for us as well. It's difficult to explain addiction to somebody that's never had it. Uh, Why can't you just stop? It's like telling a fat person to put the fork down. It doesn't work that way. And what I try to tell people to understand addiction is that in that hierarchy of needs, you know, food, shelter, clothing, um, as it goes down the line, water, once the addiction gets to the top part, Nothing else below that matters. It takes over the brain and it let, lets you believe that it's, it's messing with you, that you will die if you don't have this either drug or alcohol or sex or food or whatever the addiction is. Once it gets to the top spot, 
it's very difficult to untrain the brain to get them move that back down the list a little bit. So very difficult. I wanted to talk to you uh, again. Our, our, our uh, guest is Kim Campagni from Intermountain Healthcare's Pain Management Services. I wanted to ask you about during COVID. Um, you know, working in the recovery field, we hear about people with uh, suicides or overdoses all the time. How did it play out in, uh, nationally as well as locally here in Utah? What did you see happen? Sure. Well, you know, the Center for Disease Control, the Center for Disease Control reports that the United States saw about a 31% increase in all drug overdose uh, during 2020, which is substantial. I mean, can you imagine 30 31% increase? Well, let's compare that to Utah and how we've done. Uh, we also saw an increase in overdose deaths, but at about 11%. So that is a significant difference from the, what we're seeing nationwide. But still, anytime we see an increase in overdose deaths, that is too many. And so... Uh, we are really working through that, trying to understand what can we do, because we realize COVID has been so hard on, on the community. But the number of fentanyl overdose deaths has increased considerably over the last two years. How come? And so while we've made some really great strides in a prescription opioids, because as Utah, that's generally been, a, we're still really high in prescription, over, prescription opioid overdose deaths. Mm. We are bringing that down, and we're, we're proud of the success we're having. But we're also starting to see increases in overdose deaths with specifically illicit fentanyl. And part of that is just because it's so available on the streets. Um, many times uh, people turn to the streets if they're not getting their, their, pain meds need, uh, mm-hmm. their pain needs met or for other reasons. Um, and so that's, you know, that's something we have to be mindful of as well. And so it's interesting to understand, you know, we still have an opioid issue here, but a lot of this is also attributed to illicit fentanyl. Wow. I, I had no idea that that went up. I'm very happy to hear that uh, the increase in overdoses was much less than the nationwide number because I thought it would be much worse than that, frankly. Uh, people going through a lot of things. Let me ask you about this. We've got a few minutes left here. Tell me things about like, like Vivitrol that's being prescribed now or Sublocade, the Suboxone. Do you have any research on that? How effective has Vivitrol or either one of those two drugs been at uh, helping with uh, opioid overdose, overdose or addiction? No, that, that, that's really great. And that's one of the, that's really a great topic for us to discuss. So uh, buprenorphine, is um, a great medication that can be used for opioid use disorder, and it can also be used for patients who have chronic pain. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't have um, risk to it as well. Mm-hmm. It's but kind it, of a, it, it works similar to the opioid, does it not? Mm-hmm. Okay. But the safety profile is better. And so we want to make sure that patients, specifically if they've been these chronic pain patients for a long time, we do have treatment options for them. So that if they want to have a safer alternative, we just ask that they work with their with their healthcare professionals to work through that. But there are many great um, programs and medications now that can assist. Also, um, naloxone is something that we want to make sure that everybody has on hand. If anybody is taking an opioid, naloxone should be in their house. Oh, and that's that made it shot, very- correct? That that you can bring somebody back. Is that what we're talking about? 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So what naloxone is, is it's, it's kind of like a, an antidote to an opioid or a heroin overdose. And so um, it blocks the effects of those. And so it can help, to pre- it can help stop or prevent uh, many of these overdose deaths. And so we encourage anybody who has an opioid prescription, like I say, to have naloxone in the home. And, that, and then make sure that their family members, their friends know how to use it. And it does come in multiple forms. There is an injection, there is a nasal spray, um, and it's, it's, we've made it very easy to get. And so you can either ask your, your doctor or your, your nurse practitioner or your physician assistant to prescribe one for you, or you can actually go to a pharmacy directly and just ask the pharmacist about getting a naloxone. And anybody can go in and get it, even if you, you yourself are not the one that's taken an opioid. Mm-hmm. You can go in, say, hey, I... I want to have this on my hand. I've got a, I want to have this at home. I've got a friend or a family member who's taken an opioid um, or, or heroin, and I want to make sure that they're protected. You can go in and ask about that and get one and have it take it to your home so that you can help to keep your household members and the community safe. I'm so happy that it's available. Kim, we have to wrap up here, um, but I have to ask how would someone have, that's listening to this program that says, you know what, this is really, you know, ringing with me. How can I get some information? What would they do? Can they call? Do you have a website, uh, email? How, how can they get information? Yes. Um, there's, there's many different sources. There's um, uh, useonlyisdirected.com. There's um, Utah Naloxone. There's so much information out there about different, um, different programs. I would also just empower everyone to really understand the risks associated with opioids, mm-hmm. feel empowered to speak up and ask questions and make sure that you you understand what are your alt- options, what are the alternatives, and what are the risks. Kim Campagna, Assistant Vice President, Intermountain Healthcare's Pain Management Services. I've so enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for being with us here on Utah Weekly Forum. Thank you, Bo. Have a great day. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.